The Fate of the Furious trailer just came out. Yes, it did. And I just want to say uh, cheers to the Fast and the Furious franchise. God bless. Where would we be without you? Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Mix Six. I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And uh, we're going to begin what we're going to call a segment, mini segment called pre-partying, where we get some news out of the way. So first thing to lay on you is we have a website now, themixed6.com. And even more importantly, we are on Patreon right now. More importantly. Uh, yes, because um, sadly, not a lot of people looking to pay us mm-hmm. to drink beer and talk into microphones. Actually, the opposite. We have to pay people <clears throat> for the beer. Yes, we would like to reverse that Thanks situation. Obama. If we could just <laughs> put the one behind the other, that would be great. Um, and we need your help to do that. Uh, there's lots of cool rewards. So some of the people probably aren't into us drunkenly rambling about philosophical ideas. Some of you way into it. Probably the only so, reason you're here. Uh, support a Patreon. Get your six beer. Uh, you can also support the Patreon to get extra episodes if we hit certain milestones, to vote for segments, to vote for subtopics, or help us sponsor beers, uh, depending upon availability in Missouri. And uh, we would love to hear feedback from you and you know grow the fan base of the show. So just wanted to start off letting everybody know that we've got a website now and we've got a Patreon. Thanks so much in advance. Uh, so what's our rating system this week? So tonight I want to say two things about our beer. The first is, uh, for those of you listening at home, one thing you need to know is that the last two times we've done this, Caleb has just trusted me to bring him three beers that I choose for him. That's friendship. That that right there, folks, that's that's the alcoholic's equivalent of a trust fall. That's mm-hmm. what that is, and yes. I appreciate that. So tonight, based on those beers and others I've purchased for myself, we've got a new rating system. This, will, this week we'll be using Ghostbusters characters to rate beers. So as always, five-point system, five being the best beer you've ever had. This week, a one, terrible beer, not buying it again, would be a Slimer. A two will be a Winston Zedmore. A three will be a Ray Stance. A four, and this will be controversial, will be a Peter Vankman. And a five will be an Egon Spangler. So if it changes your life, it's a Harold Ramis character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I will say, if I had to disagree, it'd be two and three. Right. I'd rearrange that. Right. But the fact that you put four where it's at, where it belongs. Yep. And I didn't have to fight that hard for it. Right. I'm just too grateful and thrilled I to feel, even make a even make a thing about it. I feel like that's what real courage is—the <laughs> willingness to stand up on where certain Ghostbusters characters belong in hierarchy. <clears throat> yes. So Thank you're you. welcome. Speaking of our rating system, Caleb, what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking a Holiday Cheer by Shiner, uh, which is a, according to its subtitle, an ale brewed with peaches and pecans and with natural flavor and car- caramel color. Mm. Um. To be clear, reading the beer, right. I thought the alcohol trust fall was a mistake. Yep. Uh, my initial reaction was a hard slimer. Yep. Uh, peaches and pecan, not something I put together. Mm-mm. I was dead wrong. Wow. Um, it's quite tasty. Very good. Easily a three. I think it's odd enough that it doesn't go up to a four for me just because sure. of its, you know, novelty. Uh, but other than that, it's a drinkable beer. Hey, man, what are rating systems for? Yeah, you it's know? tasty. Discretion. So, All right, so a definite race dance. Love yeah. it, love it. Okay, we're going to start tonight's first segment then, Ready Player Drunk. Um, Caleb and I have, for a couple of years now, uh, been addicted to and really existential prisoners of Destiny. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the PlayStation 4, it happens to also be on Xbox One. We don't really talk about that. So tonight what we want to talk about is what what it's like to be caught in the existential dread of Destiny um, ownership 
Yes. And and player participation. To be clear, I don't think this is unique. To, Destiny does it in a unique way. That's right. I don't think our psychological situation as a result of it is unique at all. No. Um, it's definitely the first time it's happened to me. Because mm. I skipped out on a few other uh, gaming addiction yeah. trends. I was never into EVE. I never got a WoW account. I did. Yes. A couple times. Um, so you've dabbled in other stuff I before. Have. Yep. Uh, but... To that end, uh, it is a good topic because it's a hell of a thing to be in a Skinner box. To have sort of sentience to understand you're in a Skinner box. You know you're there. And to not give a fuck and just keep pressing that button. Nope. That delicious, delicious loot button. Zero fucks given. And praying that the nice scientist men at Bungie give me another engram. Yep. Because I will do anything for it. All the while anything. giving you a score for pushing those buttons to make your brain think, oh man, I really pushed those buttons so good today. When in reality, you just push those buttons. And here's the well, here's did you push them well though. I, mean, I, I put listen, guys. I mean, there's a qualitative differences in button pushing. God given talent. Yeah, just masterful button pusher. <laughs> yep, he is freaky good at Destiny. Well, he should be rewarded. Though, I've I seen think. a twenty five zero round in, in Crucible. I've had some good games. That's I've had happened. some games we're not going to talk about yet. Either. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Right. Yeah. Uh, so um, there's that. Uh, also, I think you, Destiny's unique in that uh, not only is that point total which is meaningless going up right there's like four or five different point currencies yep many of which that don't exchange with each other. absolutely irrelevant uh light levels yep glimmer yep what the, uh, what the fuck is that seriously spin metal uh mercury filaments relic iron uh, relic iron i made one of those up good luck telling which one yeah uh because yeah. they're all nonsense words I've been thinking um, a lot about this. So so where does the despair of the whole thing come from but for the structural elements like the economy that doesn't matter? So I've come up with two reasons. The first is it's like the Taco Bell of games. So it is literally just the same shit, four or five pieces of shit repackaged multiple times and called something different, right? So yes. like, this is a gordita burrito, but this is a burrito gordita. <laughs> Destiny has done this to me for two years, and every time – I plan weeks around the fact that there's a gordita burrito coming out. You know what I mean? Like, I take days off work. I hope my employers aren't listening. I I, I buy things that I wouldn't normally buy, like energy drinks and Oreos, to stay up all evening and participate in this. And yet, at the end of the day, I'm doing – it's the same button pushing. It's the same Skinner box it was two years ago when I bought the base game with largely the same shit going on. They just called it something else, and I will gladly continue to hand them money for it. That that's what it's like to be just a, a capitalist runner. And, and you're really just making an appointment with shame. That's right. Because like you'll look up. <laughs> yep. Three hours have gone by, and some part of you always knew it was going to end this way. Yep. And you also didn't really enjoy the ride. If it was a bad streak of games, it was grindy. If you were looking for a piece of gear to up your light level and it didn't come, most of the time you're not you're not feeling it. No. You know your tolerance has gotten too high. Right. The hedonic treadmill is slowed to a crawl. Uh, you're not there. But you you knew you were doing that. You penciled that into your calendar. Shame at this time. The trick for me, though, is it is grindy. It's the grindiest of grinds. It is metal on metal. Yeah. But I've done grindy before. Like, I did... I've put more time into Diablo two Mephisto runs than I have my four year marriage. And, and oddly, were they so, Iron Man runs? Well, yeah. Sometimes I mean, and wow. honestly, they feel like a little more successful. You know what I mean? And um, but but that there's something so I could manipulate the loot calculator, right? Like I could not pick shit up, and the loot calculator would get better, and I would know this, so I could plan a little bit, and I could I could influence the outcome of the grind in Destiny. I know that I can't do that. I mean, I can pop a three of coins and up my chances of finding an exotic by 11, uh, and I can hope that it works. Or 
uh, I cannot care about it, and I can play 15 games of Iron Banner, regardless of whether or not I think I'm going to get anything out of it. And that, and that's what I'll do. And like most MMORPGs, uh, our MMO shooters in this case, um, they will uh, not change that random number generator unless you threaten to kill yourself, mm-hmm. or at least your character, <laughs> which is just the hallmark of an abusive relationship. That random number generator will just wail on you. That's right. It will just beat on you without mercy until you're like... Fuck this game. Right. Why am I doing this? I should do literally anything else with my life. Right. And then, patch! Yep. That's that update comes out. And now it's like one-to-one level infusion. Yep. Dropping engrams. And then, and now and now you're like the guy who survived. Be- now you're Iggy Pop. Right. You're the guy who survived being a heroin addict for 20 years. Like, you're old hat. These people come in with one-to-one life infusion. You're like, fucking raw meat. Yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. You noob. You Work haven't earned it. it. <laughs> Get the hell out of my game, and uh, that's that's what they want you to be. They want you to be their Iggy Pop. Let me tell you. Let me ask you this: Have you have? Would you say that there is a destiny moment that is like top ten worst moments of your life? Like it would sneak into one of the ten worst moments in my entire life. Oh yeah, yeah. With like childhood pet death and then destiny yeah. is above that. Yeah. yeah, no. In my life for privilege, easily. Yeah, Fra- yeah, yeah, Fra- yeah. No, don't get me wrong. I've been a, a very, very fortunate human. Yeah. But I would say of my top ten worst moments, destiny's nine of them. Like as a human, <laughs> and and frankly, it's making a sp- an argument for ten. Two middle class white guys go to this podcast, by the way, because you didn't notice. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. the thing we just said. Yeah. Like one time, the second time we did Vault of Glass, which was the first of the big raids in the game and it was a miserable experience i don't know if you remember this but we spent six hours doing it one of the players dropped out towards the end so we had to wait and then the two gentlemen who were sherpying sherpaing us through this were really pissy at how bad we were at this game oh yeah also that's what sherpas are for okay because sheep don't know what they're doing okay um so i was so so mad uh afterwards we finally finished it like six hours later you asked me if i wanted to go get beers and i told you i had a migraine because i just couldn't look you in the (laughs) eyes that evening because i was so mad at the world that's like seventh worst (laughs) moment of my life for me right there man uh mine was on also on a raid on crota's end Mm -hmm. where we made it to the very end after easily five hours yeah and he had to go get lunch with his girlfriend. That's right. And so he quit the game, and then everyone else quit. And then I was literally the last person to log off. And I've never had, like, a more meta Russian doll moment of impotence <laughs> mm-hmm. in my life. My character could do nothing and was overwhelmed by life. And then I looked at the fact that that was affecting me. And then I was alone in my living room yep. on the planet Earth, spiraling through the cold ball of space. And nothing meant anything anymore. And why are we all here? Um, yeah. Which is a deeper philosophical thought to come to than Destiny ever deserves. That's right. Because it is written by a... Nine-year-old. S- no, I think it's senility. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think they had a good idea, and then holes were eaten in their brain by some sort of debilitating disease. Mm. Uh, you can't even blame this on innocence. Uh, like, they, they killed men in Korea... And then they wrote a video game and got Paul McCartney to do the score. For Hashtag it. conspiracy theory. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> um, well, this has been a lot of fun. I'm glad we started from strength and happiness. Yes, yeah. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get a beer. So let's uh, let's move it along. Yes. Yeah. 
Hey, Spence, what are you drinking? All right. This is one of the many Ballast Point beers that you can now find. It seems like everywhere you've gone for the last year, there have been a seemingly increasing number of Ballast Point beers everywhere. And good for them, frankly. I'm drinking the Pineapple Sculpin. So the Sculpin is kind of their base India Pale Ale. They've got a couple varieties, just your standard Sculpin, your Grapefruit Sculpin, and now the Pineapple I'm interested in the Pineapple. Well, yeah. So interest is a good way to put it. I I don't know that that would come round, as it were. So... I'll say this. In terms of just, just India Pale Ales, I think this is a really good base India Pale Ale, probably somewhere between a Ray Stance and a Peter Venkman. Vank- so maybe a Janine Melnick if we had half points. Yeah. Um, having said that, the pineapple doesn't add anything to me. It kind of makes it taste um, canned a little bit. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a Ray Stance for me. That's a three today. That's a three. Nice. Anyways, what are we talking about? We are going to talk about, on Binge Binger, mm-hmm. TV shows that are great mm-hmm. despite having really stupid premises. Love it. Love it. Uh, so uh, I'm in, I'm super int- I knew what I was going to say before I proposed this segment. Right. I'm super intrigued in what you say. Okay. So I thought a lot about this. I came up with two, and, and the second one was going to be Scream Queens. This is my shameless plug. If you haven't seen it, see it. <laughs> but the one I landed on, and maybe, maybe what I've realized is I just like talking about this show now. The one I've landed on is Arrow. And so I absolutely love Arrow. The Arrowverse. Yeah, I love the Arrowverse. Yeah. Um, I love everything about what DC is doing on television. And if we could underscore that and bold it and italicize <laughs> it as we animate this clip um, on television, I love everything that's happening with the Arrowverse in DC. <clears throat> Two reasons why, to me, Arrow has the worst premise in the history of all television. So first, if you've watched Batman Begins, you've watched the first season of Arrow. <laughs> Yeah. It is a shot-for-shot shot remake over 23 episodes, all on Netflix, of, of Batman Begins. Okay? I'm not going to get into that because just watch it. Seriously. But with arrows. But with arrows. Right. Yeah. M- more arrows. Because I think there are some archers in Batman Begins up in the mountains. I, I could be missing He has projectiles. <laughs> right. Fair Batman enough. does have ranged weapons. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, that's if lower on the technology curve. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. A yeah. bow is more advanced than a... Pointy thing. Sure. And not so subtly, Ra's al Ghul is also one of the bad guys in Arrow, as he is the bad guy in Batman Begins. <laughs> so I'm not lying here when I say it is a shot-for-shot shot remake of But Batman they don't get a Liam and, and in terms of bad premises, if you're going to copy from the DC movie universe right. and the comics, yep. copying from the one successful DC movie. <laughs> Good on them. Um, but seems insane on paper. Yeah. So, so probably the greater reason, and, and, and I was convincing my wife of this today because she's like, it's not that ridiculous. And I was like, babe, <laughs> babe, all right? Because, listen, here, here's what happens in Arrow. So the first season of Arrow, spoiler alert, um, Oliver Queen is, uh, you know, shipwrecked on an island. Everyone think he's, thinks he's dead. He's there for like five years. Lo and behold, he's not dead. He comes back, and he's the Arrow. It's that simple, okay? Um, you start to find out that, like, obviously some shit was happening to him on the island because he goes there as a party boy and he comes back as, like, Ryan Gosling and Drive. All right? So totally, <laughs> totally different thing. Okay? Um, so you know some shit happened to him on the island. That's fine. So in season one, it's kind of like figuring out what he was learning on the island. Come to find out that, like, over the course of five seasons, he was on the island, and the League of Shadows was also on the island, and he was trained. Also, he wasn't on the island the whole time. He was in Russia for a while uh, because he was a bratva, and he was learning how to, like, insulate the Russian uh, political system. (laughs) He also was in Asia for a while, working as a deep cover operative for the CIA and some clandestine uh, intelligence organization, learning to be a trained assassin. And then just at some point after all of it, someone thought, oh, we should drop him back on the island? before we let him go home and act like, hey, no one knew he was alive. So I guess what I'm saying is the reason to me it smacks of such ridiculous premises 
error is told in two different stories at all times. What's happening in the present and what happened to Oliver in the five years while he was gone. Mm-hmm. Every time they add a wrinkle in that five-year timeline, they have, they have pulled apart the quilt so that you can see <laughs> all of the patchwork. And the patchwork of the premise is is absurd. <laughs> it's like an unicorn, banana, <laughs> rainbow, arrow fight, uh, CIA, <laughs> Russia. It's like a it's like a Trump presidency. It is just it's um, absolutely absurd. So for me, the original premise was fine. It's everything they've done after that to pull that premise apart and show you all the holes in the logic to get from ep one to the episode which aired last week, which I can't talk about because that's a major spoiler. <laughs> Watch the CW kids on Wednesday <laughs> nights. All right. So it's kind of like passions. It starts off as a normal soap opera, but then by season three or four, like there's demon. There's possession. a vampire with amnesia <laughs> fighting a midget Satan for the soul of New Brunswick or something. It's just. Can I tell you guys Gonzo? a quick story about passion? Totally <laughs> random aside. I've never watched an episode, but I did hang out with a guy that was on Passions for a weekend in New York City. I'm so jealous of you. Do you want to know who the biggest dick bag in, big dick bag in the world is? A for- guy that was on Passions, and I hung out with him in New York City for a weekend. That is all. It would have to be. Yeah. That show was insane. He complimented what I was wearing, and let me tell you what I was wearing. Like baggy dickies, <laughs> a shirt that would fit like a 400-pound not-me person, and a sweater vest to cover up that that shirt was too large. He, of course, was wearing something that a soap opera actor would wear and he was like hey you look great and i wanted to be like you son of a (laughs) anyways that's all that's all on arrow and passions your turn all right uh anyway i am gonna pick westworld no spoilers if you haven't finished it yet um because i'm mainly talking about the premise which is patently absurd um the premise of westworld which is a gigantic hundreds and hundreds of acres long theme park uh, meant to simulate a Western world where all of the Western people are robots that you can shoot and have sex with uh-huh. is so patently 1960s, 70s sci-fi. Uh, it's ridiculous. And it's also got like the... It's it's joined the, the fabled halls of science fiction theme parks gone wrong, uh, uh-huh. which is a weird subgenre within <laughs> science fiction that we should really examine at right, some point. Right. But... It makes the premise of Jurassic Park look like downright plausible. Like, there's a point where that little DNA man's like, hey, I'm the DNA. Like, where you're kind of on board. Like, yeah, DNA, this is plausible. Why haven't we done this yet? It's adorable. And so you think for half a second. But if you're just like, hey, we should get a robot that looks like Yule Brenner, make it sentient, and then have people shoot it every single day (laughs) until, oh, shit, it's killing people. How could we have seen this happen? Um, That's fun, man. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So how do you take that fucking absurd premise like utterly ridiculous premise mm-hmm. uh and and make it a show and you, you give it to a nolan that's right which just seems to be like the, the stock answer the go-to that. move right. when in doubt give it to a nolan um <laughs> oh my god like batman begins exactly yeah. like arrow yeah. yeah so season six arrow is going to be westworld <laughs> calling it now <laughs> calling it now uh so yeah they make it about the singularity they make it about ai they make it about the nature of human consciousness right uh, they make it about corporatism. Mm-hmm. Um, they put it in a post-scarcity society that you never get to see. Right. So they're living in utopia out there. And the reason people can blow everything on this like environmental utopia of Westworld is that there's no more hunger or pain in the world. Yeah. They go there. And then you take the exploitative elements of the 60s, 70s things. Like everyone's going there to have 
Caligula sex, orgies. Yeah, yeah, Caligula orgies yeah. with you know old timey yeah. prostitutes and learn what robot it, and learn what it means means to kill a man uh, yeah. convincingly uh-huh. simulacrum of a man uh-huh. and then they make it about like exploitation and like what is human society but in so doing they get to show all that stuff on an HBO show so they literally get to have their cake and eat it too you forgot another really significant wrinkle here yeah. which is the absolute perfect casting of James Marston yes who's the most punchable guy all the time <laughs> James Marston has the most punchable face on earth to the point where they killed Cyclops off screen, right? He couldn't even get, he couldn't even get like the pathos of a death scene. It's That's right. Like, yeah, he's dead. Shakespeare did it anyway. Moving on, like so uh, Jonathan Nolan built a show where he was like, man, people really wanted to see Cyclops get killed. So then he wrote him into a character where people could see him get killed all yeah. the time. What if there's a park where you could go kill James Marsden right. all day? Yeah, it uh, is my life savings in a variety of fucking. I days. gave you my life savings. I will rob a bank. Ten dollars, ten dollars yeah. says that was the start of that conversation. Westworld was born out of. If you could shoot James Marsden over and over again. So you're saying Nolan had a meeting. Yep. And the meeting started with, we Look want to cast, we we want to cast a James Marsden where yeah. we could constantly shoot him. Yeah. And then they're just, find me a property that I can sell in which I can do this. And Westworld's what they landed. Here's what happened. I was behind the scenes with him. <laughs> so the Nolans are sitting around. They're trying to come up with how to build a universe. To where ex- James Marsden dies nope, forever. Nope. To extrapolate off of Batman into the DC universe. They're watching <laughs> the Marvel Universe of films to get their beat on what's going on. They stumble into the old X-Men films. They watch the first one. They think, oh, this is great. They watch the second one. They think, wow, mm. this is getting even better. They watch the third one. They're so unhappy. Jonathan turns to Christopher and he says, I want to kill James Marsden for ruining this and Christopher says have I got an idea for you the whole meeting pivots it's now about killing James Marsden that's it light shines behind them the heavens (laughs) open up and now we have Westworld on HBO God bless America now now I haven't watched the show either but I have been reading some stories about it io9 had a whole story about how HBO refuses to tell whether the robots on Westworld poop so I don't know. Is does <laughs> I like that. That's where this is the media discussion of that show going. So Ro- producer Ross, yeah. <laughs> in in your research on Westworld, but that's literally it's on. You I- have not seen. Yeah. Was that like the burning question you sought to answer? Not until Io Nine asked it. Before Io Nine asked it. All right. Oh, oh, okay. okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm empty. Yeah. Um, yeah let's just a lot more let's, beers. Yeah. Let's move away from Moving this topic. <laughs> Caleb, what are you drinking? I am drinking uh, Ballast Points Victory at Sea, mm-hmm. which is a porter with coffee and vanilla. Yeah. Now, to be clear, I am not a coffee fan at all, sure, and definitely not in my beer. Yet, I'm a big fan of Victory at Sea. Uh, the vanilla is more overpowering with the coffee, which is rare in the beer world because, like, coffee in it, throw as much as we have, like... It's not something people do with subtle reserve, Absolutely. and I feel like this one is it. So this one is easily a Peter Vinkman for me, if only for being wow a coffee stout I can uh, tolerate, which Peter is very Vinkman. rare. That's as as is a four on this show. I will say that it's one of the it's one of my more favorite dark beers, as it were, heavier beers. Absolutely, couldn't recommend it enough. Um, 
you know, today we're going to talk about on Dissecting Our Fun, where we talk to you about a board game or game of the sort, ostensibly, that we've been playing recently. Um, we, we want to change the conversation a little bit. We'll talk about a specific game, Mice and Mystics. But we'll talk about Mice and Mystics because it is the sneaky RPG that can get your non-RPG friends into the RPG style of play. Uh, and, and I can speak from some personal experience as I am the least RPG-friendly of the three of us. I've been pulled in a little bit more thanks to the two of you, dicks. Um, but Mice and Mystics certainly went a long way in that. But before we jump hey, into that... friends are overrated. That's right. That's right. Before we jump into that... Um, why don't you talk a little bit about the kind of impetus for this this segment and and this style of the sneaky RPG? Yeah. So the first time we played Mice and Mystics was going over to your house when you first moved back into town. Yep. And uh, when we first started playing, I was getting a little nervous because it is in the Hero Quest mode, which is uh, of course a very classic board game mm-hmm. that is taking RPG elements like grid combat, dice rolling, uh, gear management, stat. Uh, upgrading and leveling up, right? And it is sort of integrating those into a board game system to make it out. So I didn't know how it was going to go out because I didn't know if like people's RPG trigger was going to go right. off and people were going to get uh, squiffy about it. Yeah, uh, because that uh, yeah that happens with like kids when I try and do RPGs in the classroom. If I say the RPG word, they're too cool for it. Sure. If I'm just like you're pretending you're a Shakespearean actor, right. everyone's like fine to do it as right. long as you don't say the nerd word. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, I really like it in that regard because uh, you guys liked it, we yeah, liked it that's the first time we played it. Um, and it's very good because there is a story, and we end up sort of role playing our characters and gravitating towards the same characters again and again. Yep. But it's like it's entirely a mode of emergent play. Right. Uh, it is not in the rules that you have to do that. You can just be like move here, dice roll, things like that. But the art is so evocative, so great. The story is quite good, um, and the design is so well done that by the end of it, you know, I say Colin, like Colin, Colin. with a lovely little accent. Right. Got accents. Uh, you tend to play Nez. I do, uh, and it's 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 just solid. So we have a little bit of a Mice and Mystics success story. Uh, you ran into, I believe, the creator of the game at Gen Con. Is this correct? Yes. Yeah, what happened? Uh, I explained that we loved it, yeah. that we were most of the way through Heart of Glorm, and that we are moving through Downward Tales, the expansion. Right. And you're like, holy crap, you've played all of them? I'm like, yeah, we played every single one. Like, yeah. you're supposed to do that. It was like, no, people usually just skip around. It was like, and, and like, I, I couldn't process that. I yeah. was like, wait, no, wait, what, who? Who are these people? Do you want me to yell at them? What are Is their that names? what you're telling me? Should I go yell at them for doing it wrong? Uh, and he's like, no, that's not it. I'm like, no, we, we play everything. No dude. bullshit. We've probably sunk like 50 hours into Mice and Mystics yes. over the last two years, which like, whatever. And then I was like, oh, Tail Feathers, your $80 game. Yeah. And then I just gave him my wallet. Right, right. Which which <laughs> only had $60 because you're a public educator. Yes. So he was yeah. kind enough. And yeah. a game designer. So. <laughs> that, that's too strong. I had 70 as a public educator. Yeah, the right. game designer took another 10. <laughs> so I've been thinking critically about this. This was a really interesting idea when you pitched it uh, last week. And I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a cool idea because I, I am the guy you're talking about there, right? Like I love games, but the notion of an RPG. So I thought really critically about why I like this game and what I'm looking for. So he, here's what I want out of an RPG if I were to play one, right? I've decided this in my mind. One, I want character development. 
This is the reason that I get stuck playing Destiny and Diablo and World of Warcraft. I want to see a story. I want to see my stats get better. I want to roll for items. I want to trade out items. Sometimes I don't care if my items are good. I want to look really nice. Sometimes I want to have the best items. I don't know. Your warlock looks fabulous. My warlock is <laughs> fabulous. Okay. Uh, Egon Zord, find him on PS4 just to look at him. He hit light level 400 yesterday. It's a big deal. Is that, don't party up unless you can hang. That You can't. You can't. Iggy Pop. So, uh, yeah, 400 is a big deal, Ross. You can, you can congratulate me after the pod. So uh, I want the ability to customize, right? So thing number one I'm looking for out of an RPG is character development. Thing number two is I'm looking for some context or story. In what universe or setting is this all fitting and why am I doing it? Right? I want a purpose. Yeah. And then thing three is I want interaction. Uh, I just enjoy playing games with people that I like. It just so happens that I like both of you very much. We spent some time over the weekend playing games, and it was just bananas fun. It was. These are the three things I want out of an RPG. What frightens me about an RPG, this is, for, for, your, for your terms, this is where I get squiffy about RPGs. <laughs> it's the non-linearity of the whole thing. So I think I've been on one actual play with you guys. It was really my first attempt at an RPG. I was yeah. fortunate enough to play. Uh, you did great. Red Markets campaign. Yeah. Red Markets by Caleb Stokes. Uh, um, what's that? Find it in 2017. <laughs> uh, and and we need a plug horn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, we do. MLG. It's just the MLG horn. <laughs> yeah. um, but the nonlinearity of the RPG, RPG frightens me. So I was playing Red Markets, and there are a number of times where I turn to you or I turn to someone else at the table, and I, I felt like I was seemingly asking, like, can I do that, or is it okay if I make this decision and the reality is the answer is almost always yes there yes that's so stressful for me yeah because it's not that there's the good decision the right decision wrong decision there's just a decision and then what happens happens and so the non-linearity of the whole thing uh makes me uncomfortable i actually um have an experience like that not with a role-playing game but with the board game diplomacy yes where I, it was like we played one game of it and, I, and the very first turn i'm like I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I went to Italy and Russia. Right. And I don't know what secret letters to write to other people. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, yeah, I started a war and lost. So, was- like, because, like, I've listened to a ton of your guys' actual plays, right? Like, I hang out with you guys sometimes, the, 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 the game group sometimes, so I hear the stories you're telling about these games and the insane shit that happens which clearly is not following any story. I'm just like, you know, where the fuck do you guys get your drugs? You yeah. know, and why don't you call me? Um, so what I like about Mice and Mystics and that it, it solves the three things I'm looking for, right? It gives me some character development. It gives me some context because there's some great story around it. It's yeah. evocative, to your point. And it gives me some interaction because we get to play collaboratively. But it's linearity masked as nonlinearity. Yeah, so it's, it's a regimented experience. It's all happened in one direction, but you get some choice in how you fulfill that direction. So it takes the risk factor out of the RPG, which is a did I or did I not do the right thing there. But it makes it feel like it's still there. So there's a heightened sense of um, risk to all of your moves. Yeah. Um, when I used to teach creative writing, uh, one thing I would do would be uh, my first writing prompt would be, all right, you have a page, impress me. Mm-hmm. And I'd give them 10 minutes and just write a thing. And then I would read it later, but I'd be like, I'm not going to give you a grade on impressing me. But to be clear, that's the writing assignment for every piece of writing you're ever going to publish in the world. You got a page... You could do really anything so long as it impresses me, and that's really kind of nightmarish. And like, so I'm going to give you a bunch of writing prompts oh, to move you along. Gives me anxiety from this point. Yeah, I'm going to give you a bunch of writing prompts to give you along. I don't want you to complain about the writing prompt because I don't right. care whenever you go off of it. Right? Because you need to get to the point where that like kind of excites you. 
Uh, so at this point, don't feel like I'm stifling your creativity when I give you a writing assignment because yeah. you're taking this for a general education credit, and you don't want the ultimate freedom because like no, that's the, that anxiety you just felt is that that's where you live. It's the blank when you're right problem, now, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Um, and a lot of people have that with RPGs. To bring it back to the topic, amen. And I think there's no reason for that because it's not like a judgmental space, but. Uh, to get people past that, I think games like Mice and Mystics that sort of, you know, hold your hand and move you on this regimented experience, and they teach you, like, the joy of grid combat and stuff, <laughs> as long as it's speed up, and then you learn, and you sort of leak into playing the character, even though it's just a card with numbers on it. Right. Um, that sort of is a excellent stepping stone to get towards the, like, I don't know, do whatever you want. Yeah, that sounds cool. That's that's true now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I totally agree. It, it has for me, and, and it was a little bit less of a difficult transition for me from that to Red Markets, just because I like gaming generally. But for someone like Brandy, my wife, who loves games and loves the interactivity of the whole thing, Mice and Mystics, that may be as far as she ever goes towards the RPG side of the spectrum. But she's like totally happy with that, and I think it's gotten her more interested in the creativity of the space that isn't just roll the dice and make a move. Uh, and so I do see the the Trojan horse-like effect of this game about mice and cheese yeah. against rats and uh, cats. Yeah, to, to be clear, I'm a little afraid of your wife going full RPG. I'm a little afraid of my wife. Hey, she's probably going to be better than, than all of us <laughs> at yeah, it. Absolutely. And B, I mean, we could create a monster. She could be LARPing out inside of a week. That's like right. we we could have you know thrown her deep into the pool. Yep. yep. And you know you, you don't go that hard that fast. You, you don't, don't you don't want to LARP against my wife kids. Yeah. Have you heard of Nordic LARP? And she's just there. She just moves to Scandinavia. <laughs> <laughs> she's leading a troop. Annex is part of Denmark. You have uh, you have derailed our entire ten year plan. Now. Okay. So on that note, I'm going to get another beer and we're on. Vince, what are you drinking? I tried dramatic pauses. I love, I love that cadence. Yeah, I want you to do more of that. Shatner it up. Um, this is a Brom beer. Very possible I'm saying that wrong. Brom beer, Blackberry Goza from Odell Brewing Company. Odell's out of Fort Collins, Colorado. They have some wonderful beers. The Five Barrel Pale Ale, for example. I think it's probably on the Egon Spangler end of pale ales. The Brom beer, Blackberry Goza, on the other hand, as you know, I think I've mentioned this uh, the last couple of times we've gotten together. Real into the sours right now, the yeah. kind of Goza-like quality. Uh, this one, I thought it would be a lot because of the blackberry and the Goza style. I actually think it has mostly an ale flavor that I'm not totally crazy about. Um, and I think there could be more blackberry and probably a little more tart or sour on the back end. So this for me is a race stance. Uh, probably wouldn't go back to it. Certainly wouldn't be mad if someone bought me one yeah. uh, and happened to send it to Springfield, Missouri for me to try again. Hint, hint. But, but Like if I saw Dan Aykroyd, I'd be pretty thrilled until he started talking about blues music. Yeah. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, great. We're done. Good yeah. meeting you, Dan. Right. Cool. Cool. Thanks, man. Um, so that's what I'm drinking. I think he would want to talk to you about his vodka, you know, the one that he sells in a skull bottle. Is that a thing? Yeah. You Is that Dan Aykroyd's vodka? Yeah. Dan Aykroyd, hit us up, man. Producer Ross. <laughs> producer Ross with Android poop and Dan Aykroyd vodka. Big night for Producer Ross. So um, that's what I'm drinking. Caleb, what are we talking about? So uh, we're going to talk about a new segment called Com Corner. Com Corner. So as you might be aware, you are a doctorate of communication. That's true. Yeah. PhD. You still got that on board. Rock chalk. Um, so 
Uh, I am interested to hear about some things involving communications we'll as a person just dabbling in it. Uh, so uh, there's this thing called the Five Geek Social Fallacies. You mm-hmm. can find it on plausiblydeniable.com. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a uh, cornerstone text within geekdom. And uh, they're pretty interesting. You've read them before. Uh, for those that have, haven't gotten into it, the five geek social fallacies are social fallacies that hold back geeks. And not like hold them back in that you haven't, you know, fucked the prom queen and, you know, been a varsity quarterback. But it, it generally decreases the quality of social interaction among fellow geeks you know, and, and the quality of life. Um, so the five geek social fallacies are ostracizers are evil. Mm-hmm. Um, friends accept me as I am. Friendship comes before all. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one I find most interesting, friendship is transitive. And the idea friends do everything together as a relation of friendship is transitive. Yeah. Um, And plausibly denial goes into some great detail explaining why these fallacies really wonderful explanation. Um, But I was interested to get a doctor of communications uh, take on it. Yeah. So I find these terribly fascinating. A as a I guess geek uh, as as a longtime nerd geek. You know I won't get into the parlance war about what those things mean. But whatever whatever these broad social classes look like, sure I, I you know I I identify with that. But before I jump too deep into the theory on this whole thing, I, I'm curious why the fourth of the five geek social fallacies is the most fascinating to you, this notion that friends, friendship is transitive. Yes, because uh, that is the one I see most often. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've, I've recognized the other, but the idea of friendship is transitive is the thing I see most often. Because um, though I am still a geek, there was a period in which I was rejecting my heritage of cheap dime sci sci-fi novels. There was. Um, And uh, the thing I noticed most that was quickly breaking down with that is that, um, and I thought it was because one is fake, one is uh, disingenuous, Uh, being a plastic person is part of being an accepted person. That's how I sort of, you know, saw it during my, you know, dark times in my youth. Um, But one thing I was very surprised to see is that there are friends with certain activities and certain people that can group together. But you have to sort of maintain this network of pods, of collections of people. Um, And that was odd to me because I'd never had more than three or four people in my life who could stand me. Um, So as a result of that, uh, I just thought that that was like a weird thing that everyone did. But that's just like the normal thing everybody does. Sure, sure. Uh, because grandma doesn't want to go to poker night. Um, so, yeah, yeah it, that just seemed odd to me. And it was sort of a revelation that I can't like go back to how I was thinking about it before. Yeah. But it was so deeply ingrained to me that if they were friends, they wanted to do absolutely everything with you, whether it's playing video games or, you know, going chess club or right. doing pretty much anything. So. Right. Yeah, no, I, I'm also interested in that one, partially because uh, not not that uh, my friends are necessarily segmented, but that like as I think about the great the great span of my free time, what I find myself doing is picking groups of friends to do certain things with, and then groups of friends to not do those things with, also, and really happily enjoying the fact that if I were to bring those groups together in one group's thing. Uh, I would have a lot of anxiety or stress about making the introduced group feel like they were part of this this like niche that we'd now built collaboratively. So anyways, so the comm perspective, uh, yeah, a couple things I'm really interested in here. I thought, much as you brought a critical framework to a conversation uh, that we had last week, I wanted to bring a critical framework to a conversation this week. Drop it on me. Yeah, so, well, okay. (laughs) I probably should have uh, buttressed that a little bit better by saying I wanted to, but rather than bringing a critical framework, I just brought a critical scholar to the table. Uh, So my favorite philosopher, critical scholar of probably the 20th century is Kenneth Burke. Absolutely love. Is he here? Do we have a guest? (laughs) Yeah, we do. Oh, no, he couldn't make it. He couldn't make it. No, he's busy. Oh, he's he's dead. Okay, well, (laughs) thanks for trying. Yeah. 
Um, Kenneth Duva Burke. So totally fascinated by Kenneth Burke. Absolutely love his work. A um, couple of things stood out to me as we were thinking about this topic over the last couple of days. So Burke is famous for a number of concepts. At, at the core of those is this notion of identification, uh, which is the rhetorical concept of finding shared substance, whereby you and I are similar with one another. Um, for Burke in A Rhetoric of Motives, which is one of his more famous works, he, he kind of makes the claim that without identification, there is no persuasion. So if you and I cannot find some common ground or consubstantiality, something which binds us, we could never move one another off of our ideological positions about insert thing. So you know, immediately to, immediately to me, I look at the five geek social fallacies and I think about identification, this thing uh, that uses a term geek, which in Burke terms is kind of a terministic screen. Uh, it is that a, is very holy screen. Yeah, absolutely uh, right, and more so with every day. It yeah. is it is a term which which lets certain things in and keeps certain things out, much as a screen would. And so it's both a constitutive use of language to say that we are this way, um, but it's also an exclusionary use of language, which is to say, and so that anything that doesn't fall within this category is also a way of defining the category. So identification stands out to me because in one way it's about uniting a group of people, geeks, to mm-hmm. say that these people have these things in common. In in another way, though, uh, and in Burke terms, it's also congregation by segregation, which is that I, this idea that it's also inclusive by way of being exclusive. And so there's something very um, armor-like about the term geek, which is to say because I wear this as a badge, everyone who doesn't have this badge can't get out, can't get into the party. Uh, and uh, the other reason I find this fallacy is interesting is that we're seeing them uh, have serious effects on culture at large yo. with like – this sort of uh, instant rejection of anything not geek, yeah, uh, sort of uh, turning malignant into like the Gamergate movement and stuff like that. Yeah, well, and think um, about the outrage at like you know Comic Con these days. The, the people who have shown up to Comic Con for the Marvel Universe and who have ostensibly crowded out of Comic Con the people who would wait in line for, for comics. Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Or not uh, even Marvel comic movies like just sitcoms and things will premiere at yeah. Comic Con. Big, oh, Big Bang Theory. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. yeah. right. Um, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it's sort of. Um, and then the geek and nerd culture is not sort of a useful term anymore yeah, no. uh, because it bears with it no actual social stigma or at right. least not nearly what it had. I mean, like, had you gotten to me in the early 90s and be like, being a geek means being a Nazi that hates women. And I'm just like, wait, no, um, I, I like video games and then I think the thing's pretty cool. <laughs> like, John Carpenter's pretty sweet. I'm not... Not pro Nazi. Uh, how did how did these guys get in the tent? Right, and it's because the tent has blown away. That's absolutely, and right. we're pretending the tent is there. Uh, yeah. So this concept of congregation by segregation, then, which is you know, I'm, I will even more tightly unify with those who are as drastically unlike those who are not yeah. as I possibly can. What's interesting, though, about these geek social fallacies is that they suggest a, a, a modus operandi for geeks, which is. Um, the opposite of what Burke talks about is casuistic stretching. So Burke talks about this process by where we introduce terms such that we can expand our ideological boundaries outward and onward until our that, that ideological boundary cannot be stretched any further. Um, and so if you read Attitudes Toward History, for example, which is probably my favorite of the Burke texts, Burke starts by describing the six epics of history and – uh, each one of those for Burke is the process of taking an ideological framework and then uh, casuistically stretching the boundaries of that framework until it can't go any farther. And at that point, then the owners of said framework have to say, "We'll go this far, but no farther." So if we if we cannot agree with what's on the other side of that line, now we're in conflict. And so he describes um, political wars, religious wars, philosophical wars, historical wars as 
as really the function of casuistic stretching kind of reaching its, its most significant limit. What strikes me about geekdom, though, as we expand into the 21st century, is that geekdom is really about casuistic shrinking. Um, it's about compressing what fits in this circle and almost a holier-than-thou kind of approach to, at least according to these social fallacies, the ability to exclude or include others. Um, based Arwen, on we have like 80s movie villains, like let's lower the the threshold of the stretching because that's right. this area is defensible. That's right. Like we can we can defend these walls. Right. Uh, and not any further. So what I find fascinating about these geek social fallacies is that uh, what they're really doing is they're suggesting that um, groups, social groups, can, by way of language, identifying what is and is not acceptable, not only expand their barriers, but they can also shrink their barriers, and that geekdom is a very interesting mechanism for doing that because it, 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 it does not expand your barriers as a pebble radiating outward, but rather by making strategic decisions based on um, inclusion criteria. You know, Do you know X thing about random niche concept and pulling you from the crowd to shelter you um, from this kind of ravenous crowd around you. And so I find these geek social fallacies so fascinating because they really ask us to contemplate how we've used terms not only to define a group but also to define why that group would exclude others in an out group and how it would go about picking randoms to pull out of one and into another pile. Yeah. And all of that to say, um, you should drink more beer. Agreed. Dear Mr. Stokes, what are you consuming? I am drinking Evil Twin Brewing, mm -hmm. the Cowboy, which, before I get to the taste, and this is not indicative of the taste, can we just take a moment to appreciate some packaging here? I'm absolutely in love with it. Uh, we've got a cowboy's face that's like sort of digital camouflage. Pixelated. Like, yeah, it's some Westworld shit. Uh, anyway, it is a smoked pilsner. Mm -hmm. Tastes a little bit like a cigar, but not mm. in a bad way if you like a cigar. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to give it a three. I feel like I could drink this out on the range if it weren't in such a fashionable bottle. Right. Uh, but on sheer taste alone. So it's a, it's a race dance. It's a race dance. Lots of race dances is what I'm learning. Yeah. 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 So uh, we're back to Armchair Director. This is something we've done every time now. We're going to talk about movies. We're going to shorten it up a little bit, though. Because we tend up? to go long. Man, can we talk about some movies? We can. Here's what we've learned. When it's top five, we talk way too much. Mm -hmm. And so we're going we're gonna to shorten today to top three. Yeah. You were pushing me on what we should do next for Armchair Director. And I thought, I bet everyone listening to this really wants to know what we watch when we want to cry a little, we want to laugh a little, and we want to love a little. Mm -hmm. So this is top three romantic comedies. Oh, thank God. I'm going to let you start The first. letters will finally stop coming. <laughs> you're, you're welcome, <laughs> listeners. So, uh, I'm not going to lie. Right. Not as well-versed in this one as the superhero genre. I crushed this list. Okay. okay I'm mm -hmm. going to give it my best. Mm -hmm. and, and as always, my caveat is my top three. Right. Not everybody's. This ain't the AFI. Yep. Ain't nobody paying me to curate a watch mojo list. I'm telling you right now. My top three are the top three romantic comedies of all time. Okay, wow. You're just coming in hot. All right. Um, this shit in stone. <clears throat> all right. Uh, so uh, my number three mm -hmm. is going to be It Happened One Night. Oh, old school. 1934, Frank Capra, uh, Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert. I'm going to ask you a question. Did you straight up Google best romantic comedies? I teach a film class? 
So yes, bitch, <laughs> because I, I teach about the origin of romantic comedy. So step off for a second, Mister. My top three are the best ever. Do you know what the number one rated romantic comedy on Rotten Tomatoes is? I believe, and I could be speaking a little bit drunkenly. I'm fairly certain it is. It happened one night. I did not know that. Well, you're welcome. Okay, Frank Capra, right? Seminal American director. Heard uh, had the American Experience Down Pack, um, and. The reason I like it happen one night, because it so clearly evidences the historical reality that invents the romantic comedy as a genre, while at the same time so clearly establishing those guidelines and doing so seamlessly without a matter way. So for those that uh, are not familiar, the primary uh, romantic comedy formula, which is the banter, hate to love you, love to hate you kind of thing, uh, these sort of things like... Uh, which, by the way, is a terrible way to operate in most relationships. It's worked for uh, us. If you're, ad- <laughs> yeah. if you're adversarial about absolutely everything, mm-hmm. it's probably not a great idea. You probably just don't like each other. Just don't get married. Um, it's all a result of the Hayes Code, which yeah, she's is... she's not playing hard to get. <laughs> yeah, she's not playing hard to get. Right. Which is uh, a- an establishment of the Hayes Code, which said, basically, that's why you can't sleep in the same bed. Leave it to Beaver-wise. Uh, it is an almost entirely... Oh, come I'm just I, showing you that it's I, number one on Rotten Tomatoes. I, so. I doubt everything that you're saying at this well, point. Well, I'm putting on my tight jeans, right. growing a ironic mustache, right. and smoking a cliff cigarette. And I'm shirt. also saying fuck you. All mustaches um, are ironic. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it really establishes it because in the plot of the film, uh, you have this sort of love-hate dynamic between Clark Gable's reporter right. and the heiress that he is uh, escorting across town. Uh, not across town, across the country, mm-hmm. um, as a result of her running away from her father in order to marry uh, a man named King Wesley, mm. which is the best Baxter name that's ever existed. <laughs> Love it. And it will never be topped by anyone, even if they're played by Bradley Cooper, uh, who is the seminal Baxter. Because, again, talk about punchable faces. Wow. Um, it establishes the formula. There's a girl. She is from the wrong side of the tracks. In this case, it is a class divide because it's the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So you also have this commentary on like one of America's most seminal historical moments. Um, you have this down and out reporter who is exploiting her for financial gain. Ten things I hate about you, anybody. Uh, and then you've got uh, that Deep. that sort of formula going up and again and again. But then it's evolving into real sentiment between the two of them. She is realizing that King Wesley is not right for her. It hits every single beat. And it doesn't hit every single beat as a result of needing to. It hits every single beat because it's making the beats. Uh, And it's making the beats because of this historical reality of the Hayes Code and Capra's deep, deep love of the American experience. I defy you not to smile at the bus scene where they all have a sing-along on the bus. Don't defy me. Um, (laughs) It is the most Americana thing since A Wonderful Life, another Frank Capra film. And there are Capra... Romantic comedies I like more. I I enjoy Arsenic and Old Lace uh, just as a movie more because it's delightful. But for me, it's It Happened One Night because it invents the genre. And uh, it's still watchable, which is not true for most of the films in the 1930s or 20s. It's absolutely true. A lot of the jokes still hit. Um, it's cl- cleverly written. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Happened One Night is a play on biblical reference, but it's meant to play about when they finally get di- down to fuck. Wow. Um, because wow. that's when the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, <laughs> Yep. and the walls of Jericho is a blanket fort they build between each other so they don't see each other changing naked. Get it? Uh, yeah. yeah. Talk about shit that gets past the Hayes Code. Get it? <laughs> uh, we hit our sex joke inside a Bible reference. Right. Uh, right. That I, I, I don't know. I'm into right. it. Yeah. 
So if yours, there was like the champagne of selections minus the bush light, okay? <laughs> the third best. The champagne of beers. Yeah. The third <laughs> best romantic comedy of all time is Gross Point Blank. Starring John oh. Cusack. I'm so pissed it's not on my list. So yeah. I love that movie. I debated unapologetically intensely yeah. between High Fidelity and Gross Point Blank, and and almost both of them made the list. But Thanks then I thought, the then I thought, what <laughs> what about my life would that say if two of the three most romantic comedies I'd ever seen starred John Cusack? Okay, it would say so much about my love life, like as an adult male. So so I decided to go for the one that has had the most uh, probably significant effect on my life. Here's my thing about Gross Point Blank. A, the banter is literally perfect, not just between Minnie Driver and John Cusack. And it holds up. It a holds lot of up. 90s banter does not. Man, Minnie Driver is so fast. And Cusack, you typically don't think of Cusack banter as quick because he's so subtle as a human. But when you pair his like incredible subtlety with Minnie Driver's literal speed in the way she delivers lines, it She feels. slows Cusack down in that movie. Oh, my God. And the beauty of it is is that you, re- you can't tell if it's because he's thinking up of a lie because right. it's a hit. Man, right, or if it's just he's so like fucking nervous around her because yeah. it's high school crush, and then you realize it's both. It's both. Yeah, that's it's that's the fucking bango. It's both. <laughs> you throw an Ackroyd who's talking faster than both of them, making these like obscure war references that are just phenomenal, and and whose entire arc of the film as the antagonist is he wants to unionize. Yeah, he wants which to is unionize just delightful. <laughs> the Marxist hitman is just a hilarious comedy character. But so let me let me say this and this is kind of my final plug for Gross Point Blank other than the soundtrack which would be my second to last plug for yeah. Gross Point Blank. There is a moment in the film where they actually go to their high school reunion Cusack and Minnie Driver and they run into some woman that they've known and she now has a child and Cusack like stares longingly into the eyes of this baby and this baby stares back and it's like wonderfully written and there's nothing happening and it's almost silent by nature and the music kind of tones out a little bit but it starts with this sort of detachment disgust and yes. then it gets to, into a real emotion right. like that's the brilliance of the performance and then only moments later if I recall I think I have the timing correct Cusack then goes upstairs to and, check his old locker and stabs a si- uh, Siberian hitman in the neck and then stabs <laughs> a dude in the neck in one of the most interestingly choreographed fight scenes ever because the guy who he's fighting with is actually the the choreographer oh yeah and like a full-on motherfucking badass and cusack does kickboxing and has to say anything hey man if you're gonna be crazy do kickboxing also is how i feel about john (laughs) cusack and so gross point blank is for me the third best romantic comedy of all time god that's good so i'll take that one as a win let's uh let's go another round number two you're gonna hate this one Uh you're gonna hate it so much cool good lead in oh god you're gonna hate it so much (laughs) Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Fuck you, man. <laughs> Fuck you so hard. I have not seen that. You're off. Producer Ross, you're in next week. <laughs> All right. Did I just get pinched? I'm the, under- you're, I'm the understudy. I mean, you, you, really? It's like yes. you fell and broke your So leg. what was your favorite part about that movie? Was it the uh, obnoxiously detached teenage girl? Uh, is that Michael Sarah? Who's the Michael guy? Michael Sarah and yeah. Kat Dennings. Yeah, was it? Yeah, Kat Dennings. You know who who was just who was really getting ready for her work on Two Broke Girls, yeah. which has really changed the sitcom dynamic. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> uh, was it Michael Sarah being peak Michael Sarah? 
Uh, was Is there it, any other kind? Was it the recording studio scene where they're like having a kind of like bantery love affair in a literal fucking recording studio? What what was it, Caleb? About do Nick we and just want to spend this whole segment having you berate me, or should I say? Because frankly, I deserve one and could do the other a little bit. Because here's what you said to me only moments <laughs> ago: you didn't think it happened one night was as good at ar- good as arsenic and old lace. And so what you said was, but I'm not going to put that on the list. I'm going to put Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. All yeah. Right, no. Please. Please. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I really like that movie, and I couldn't figure out why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's yeah, one of those movies either. that I watched multiple times, but right. I could not figure out why I liked it. Um, and I still have those movies where I, I can't figure it out. But I'm I'm putting forth a hypothesis, which I'm not sure. Huh? I think I like it because Michael Sarah's the manic pixie dream girl in that one. Oh, Ooh. intrigued. Go Kat, on. Cat Dennings is grounded, right? She is uh, from a rich family, but disdains it, mm-hmm. but not to the point where she's giving up her privilege in any way, shape, or form. She just wishes she was more authentic. Uh, Michael Sarah is the bassist in an all-gay punk band with a literal crew of fairies and figurative crew of fairies mm-hmm. because they magically escort them through this wonderful teenage New York night. Get it? Um, and they, uh, he is... Interested in everything. He knows the best music. He loves everyone. He's kind of cute without trying to be so. He's submissive while at the same time he's desirable. And it's really about Kat Jennings coming to grips with the fact that she wants to be with Michael Sarah, And then she has to get Michael Sarah away from his own Baxter, which is his ex-girlfriend, um, which is pivotal for the romantic comedy formula. You need a Baxter. You need a other person to leave so as to demonstrate the demonstrate the demonstrable hotness the of the host yeah right. uh establish the stakes cat dennings is uh kind of in a relationship with the guy that ho- her dad hooked her up with who runs a jewish punk band right um who brings the jew fire as he says yeah. and she only ever eyes rolls her eyes at him and scream she's not into that right it's never even thought of as a consideration yeah Whereas Michael Sarah is the will-they-won't-they sort of thing. So I do like the sort of gender inversion of it. And you're young, you're listening to music, you're in New York City. When else would the fucking absurd formula of a romantic comedy work in the modern condition? So I just want to clarify two things. One, I think you're wrong, if that wasn't clear. <laughs> I, yeah. Very yeah, I think we're good. Um, two, I am the June Diane Rayfield of this podcast. You absolutely have become that tonight, okay. sir. Um Two, I don't dislike this film. I just didn't. I would have lost all my money if someone had come up to me and said, "Do you think Caleb would put Nick Nor's Infinite Playlist on his top three Con romantic man, comedies?" Look out. Yeah, yeah. So, Spencer Harris. I feel like you just got me right there. My, my <laughs> number, my number two. Um, not only do I think you will love it, I think it is the appropriate number two. The second best romantic comedy of all time is Shaun of the Dead. Oh, Ooh, nice. Yeah. yeah, no, it is nice. You see, Caleb, what happens when I, I make my decisions? Yeah. People are like, oh, interesting. And when you say it, people are like, get off the mic. Okay. So that was you. you. Yeah. Yeah, I, it was me. I put yeah. it in yeah. a different genre. Right. Uh, yeah, the genre of best romantic comedies, clearly, because that's not what you're operating No, on. it's a parodic zombie film. It is not a parodic It is a romantic rom-com. comedy, though. It is a rom-com, you, producer but Ross. it's a parodic genre film. It can be both. It, it, uh, it qualifies. It can be replacing both. the host here. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Uh, but it's not taking down the premises of romantic comedies. It's taking down the premises of zombie films. Mm. It needs a familiarity with the zombie genre more than it needs a familiarity with the romantic comedies. Uh, I don't agree with that because the large bulk of the film is trying to comment 
on the fact that much of the things that are happening in society around you while you're figuring out the ins and outs of how to be an affable human uh, engaged in some lovely affair with another human are all of the normal things that people do anyways, like work at a fucking grocery store or push carts around a parking lot or work at a bar or sit at a bar. And so the zombie film becomes one lens by which you view all of the other things that literally become mindless around you as you negotiate the inner workings of a relationship. And frankly, I think that was so poetically stated that I'm done talking about this one. What's your number one? Agree to disagree. Mm, We're coming back to Shaun of the Dead. (laughs) It's not going to appear in another list. That's right. All right. uh, So this is my number one. Correct? Yeah. Uh, I really like Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Okay. Totally fair. It was almost my number three. Okay. Yeah. It's a fantastic film. Wonderful. I love every second of it. Yep. Uh, Comedy. And romantic comedy has never been done so right and so timeless. Absolutely perfect. Uh, I can I can laugh. It's hilarious. Uh, it's hilarious on multiple spectrums. Jason Siegel uh, is a dream. Jason Siegel is just a dream. Uh, the Dracula puppet musical, unbelievable. That I haven't seen that in its entirety. Where's is a that movie? Crime. Yeah, Hamilton's great. Whatever. Right. Give me the Dracula musical with That's puppets. Right. That's right. Uh, I will be there with bells on. Uh, I love that film. Unapologetic. Mila Kunis is just, oh my God. Astounding. Uh, Astounding. Uh, and Kristen Bell is perfectly lovable and hateable at the same time. Yes, perfectly. And I don't find Russell Brand obnoxious. And, and as ridiculous as the setting is, and as ridiculous as the premise is in right. terms of like, I'm a TV actress and I'm a Dracula puppet musical writer. Right, right. I've never seen a movie that does like a relationship breaking up after a long term. So right, just really honestly. In terms of like like going through your list of your own like failings, yep. as you're simultaneously going through a list of like all the other person's uh, you know spiteful, hateful things they've ever done. Yes, know? yeah. Uh, so I love that movie. Uh, I think that's a great choice. I had a lo- I had a list of four things that could be my number three. That was one of them. So kudos to you. My first one, and this is probably as much about my. Uh, unhealthy adoration for Ryan Gosling as it is anything else. My number one romantic comedy is Crazy Stupid Love. (laughs) It is unapologetically one of my five favorite movies of all time. Uh, It has almost a perfect cast. So Steve Carell, who I love. Uh, It's got uh, Emma Stone, who I just think is like kind of it in terms of like actresses right now. Uh, It's got... Uh, Julianne Moore, and if I remember correctly, you have quite a crush on Julianne Moore because uh, I'm human, right? And let and and yet you've managed to forget probably her best film. And then it has let's be honest with each other, and I'm a happily married. Did male. you say that was Julianne Moore's best film? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're we're going <laughs> Julianne Moore fight TBD. <laughs> You're getting in the way of the point here, which is it also has Ryan Gosling, and I'm a happily married man, and Ryan Gosling is it. Okay, okay. he's the top of the food chain. Everything else get in line. All right. When Ryan Gosling uh, lifts Emma Stone up as they are doing uh, that wonderful bit piece and she's trying to figure out how it is he gets women to sleep with him, it is like one of the greatest 30 seconds in all of film. And happening all around this beautiful human is Steve Carell being incredible. Okay, look, I'm going to agree with you. There are some fantastic scenes in that movie. I've never believed a hookup more than that Emma Stone Ryan Gosling scene. The the t- when he takes his shirt off and she starts saying, "Are you photoshopped?" Right. Uh, the the massage the chair massage that chair. they both hate. Oh. The jump cuts in that scene is brilliant. But 
while I love that movie for a variety of reasons, I couldn't put it in my top ten list because it's paced like one of those Family Guy movies that they intentionally put in thirty minute segments so they can cut it up for syndication later. Yeah. Like as a pacing, that movie makes no goddamn sense. It's like three or four movies, and the coalescing at the end is like Shakespearean coincidence levels of happenstance plotting. Like it's just lazy writing at the end because it was spent all on. Make Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling seem adorable. And you know what? It was a good investment, but as like a total film, it's not in the top three for me. Okay. I, I hear what you're saying. I disagree with you, yeah. obviously. Uh, what, one of the most frustrating things about that movie was I, was I was so starstruck by how in love I was with everyone on the screen that when the, oh my God, it's all related moment happens, uh, I almost felt both dumb uh, and overwhelmed with tears as I cried for joy at the resolution of all of these arcs. So know this about me, folks. I'm a serial crier. I cry at almost everything. I have bawled at Crazy Stupid Love. And I need another beer. Yeah. 